Welcome to episode 12 of China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. President Xi Jinping is a leader with strong convictions. He believes firmly in the importance of upholding confidence in the Communist Party throughout China, including regions which have previously strived to be autonomous. This centralization of power is matched by a growing emphasis on nationalism, which permeates all political, diplomatic and economic spheres in China. Nationalism also has a profound impact on China's dealing with the rest of the world. China refuses to be submissive and acts tough on many issues, striking back at its critics and insisting on more loyalty from its citizens and from Chinese people working or studying abroad. Well, I'm delighted to say that we're joined once again by Professor Christopher Hughes from the Department of International Relations at the London School of Economics. Christopher, on behalf of the SOAS China Institute at the University of London, Welcome back to the China in Context podcast. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Well, let me start with a big question. What's the difference between patriotism and nationalism? <laughs> well, basically, when I'm a nationalist, I say I'm a patriot. When you're a nationalist, I say you're a nationalist. Uh, actually, you know, it's, there's really no difference. Um, you know, patriotism we like to see as a positive thing, and so I would always say I'm a patriot, not a nationalist, but essentially the same thing. Um, and in effect, we are all nationalists in the modern world because we're all citizens of nation states. Um, so uh, it, having said that, I think it's important to realize there are different types of nationalism, and that's particularly important for China. Um, you know, there are some types of nationalism are a lot more dangerous than others, especially ethnic nationalism is much more dangerous than a kind of civic nationalism that I think all of us would accept that our legal status, our legal rights and so on and obligations are based in a nation state. That doesn't seem too bad to me, but when it gets into ethnic nationalism as a form of legitimacy, um, that becomes much more dangerous. And we, of course, we've seen throughout the 20th century where that leads and it's not to a good place. So nationalism suggests that a whole country has a common purpose. How does that relate to discussions in China about the special administrative provinces such as Hong Kong, such as Tibet? Well, <laughs> I think actually when the more that uh, political leaders talk about nationalism, the more it indicates they lack a common purpose. <laughs> because if, if people living in a political entity in a state have already assumed that they have a certain purpose, then they don't need to talk about nationalism. They don't need to impose a certain type of nationalism on everybody. What we see in China is that the more that that nationalism is questioned and the less agreement there is, the more the party and the state have to emphasize their view of nationalism. And of course, Hong Kong is the most extreme case at the moment with the imposition, the communist party's version of patriotism, which means loyalty to the communist party. The more they talk about nationalism in China, I interpret that as a sense of insecurity and a fear that they are, they need to talk about it because they realize that less and less people actually believe in it and that may be certainly more so in 
places like Tibet and Hong Kong than it is in, in other parts of China. But we shouldn't assume that in other parts of China, there's a solid agreement on national purpose at all. And it goes back a bit to what I said in my first answer that there are different types of nationalism. And one of the most important things about nationalist politics in China is that it can be used to advocate very hardline foreign policy towards Japan and Taiwan and those kind of issues. On the other hand, it can also be used by liberals and democrats who will say the true form of nationalism is to have a more open democratic kind of china and you will see that throughout um, the last few decades under reform and opening that a lot of liberals have tried to use nationalism to support their argument for political reform and even democracy so how does china cultivate this nationalism through its education system well, it's there in the textbooks. Uh, it's there. It's the policies, the laws are all there publicly available. Of course, there are instructions to schools to use books from kindergarten right up even into workplace education to promote a certain version of nationalism at the center of which is loyalty to the Communist Party and its narrative of national salvation. Now that can be seen even in mathematics books and art books across the curriculum. It can also be seen, and I'm particularly interested in this because it leads us to the more dangerous kind of nationalism is a growing emphasis on national defense education um, and the sort of military dimensions of nationalism. We can also see it in maps, in geography lessons, you know, the nine dash line in the South China Sea is you have to put that in every map. That's a legal requirement. Um, the inclusion of Taiwan in China, all of these issues, uh, the whole narrative of history and the China, how the Communist Party won the war against Japan and, um, you know, defeat and won the war against the US in Korea, all of which is mythology, of course, that's there unquestioned and it's magnified in, in, the, in the media as well, which is linked in with that propagation. Then you have the patriotic education sites, museums, monuments, which children are taken to, uh, to remind them of the humiliation of China, it's 100 years of humiliation. It's a powerful narrative, no doubt about that, very powerful, but it, it can't be challenged. And at the moment, just recently, there's been a new initiative by the party. Um, they put up a website where you have for people to report anyone who who falls out of line uh, with the narrative of the communist party they call it historical nihilism that means basically what we call history people who take a critical view of the past now there's a website where you can report anyone who does that to the authorities and disciplinary action will be taken well, you say that narrative can't be challenged within China. What about abroad when students from China go to the United States or Australia or indeed to our universities in London, London University or the LSE? Are they encouraged to be loyal nationalists while they're studying abroad? Well, we know they are encouraged by their embassies, for example, because the, the, we, we've seen speeches made by ambassadors which call on them to be loyal to their country uh, while they're abroad. Now, um, 
we have, there's also evidence of certain organizations of academics and student organizations that have links with embassies so we know that that goes on but i wouldn't read too much into it to be honest because there are so many chinese students and we shouldn't generalize um, i think there may be certain dynamics within the chinese student community which would lead to a kind of self-censorship because if there are activists if there are people with strong nationalist views they could intimidate uh, those who have different views and we saw this of course with the disturbances in hong kong in 2019 where there were the, the frictions between mainland chinese students and hong kong students broke out into the open on many campuses but we've also seen intimidation of students from mainland China, in the US, in Australia, and other places who have um, not even spoken up on behalf of Tibet, but tried to mediate between different groups who, who have tensions, who are then ostracized or their families are threatened back in, in China for because they're, they're deemed to have been traitors. So we know that goes on, but I wouldn't, I certainly don't want to brand all Chinese students as, as, as sort of puppets because, um, they have diverse views like all students, and it's our obligation really to provide safe spaces where they can explore those views and, and explore the more critical um, history and, and narratives of, of their own past. Um, so that's our obligation. But we know that the Chinese state, the party state, has an interest in ensuring that, that the view they want to project of China the party state isn't challenged. Well, I'm pleased to say I've been at a number of um, public lectures at the LSE over the past few years in which all different aspects of Chinese history and politics have been discussed very openly. And actually, a lot of Chinese students have enjoyed attending those events, I think. Let, let's talk about another um, uh, theme that you mentioned there, the media. What role does the media play in reinforcing nationalism? Well, it, it plays a key role. And again, there are laws in China and regulations that make it do that. And we've seen it tightened up quite a bit over the past few years under Xi Jinping. There was a period under Hu Jintao in the 2000s when there seemed to be much more space for um, academics and journalists to present different views on episodes like the Korean War was one of the most um, famous episodes when some academics began to question the, the official narrative of that. Those things have been stopped now and there's been a, a real tightening up of, of control over the media uh, and that's both the Chinese media and the foreign media working inside China. So uh, the media though we can also, uh, is, is a broad term and if you include films for example we've seen the development of more of films that fit the new nationalist narrative of the China dream and the strong army dream, like the Wolf Warrior films are the most famous example, Wolf Warrior 1 and 2, which show a, a face of a more confident, assertive China, in this case, active in Africa, um, highly militaristic, much more like the Hollywood films, you know, with the hero, the military heroes, mirroring a lot of that language and imagery. Um, television, of course, uh, it, <laughs> Chinese TV is notorious. You go to China, you turn on the TV and there's like 20 channels and 15 of them will be 
the communists fighting the Japanese or the KMT in the past. Um, and those dramas continue to be churned out. So it, it's, it's there. And I think there's less space now to do interesting things. It's a shame because you could see more critical films, more interesting drama series and so on, beginning to appear for a while around in the 2000s. Um, some of them very good quality, in fact, but those seem to be disappearing now because there's really, you know, Xi Jinping's way of governing it just will not allow any questioning of the narrative, of his narrative. Uh, there's a real tightening up there. Uh, and everyone's aware of that in China. Uh, even foreign correspondents now are being forced out and really don't want to go there because the situation becomes so tight. So the media is a powerful tool and, and um, social media, of course, fits into that too. Well, I was going to ask you a very specific question about social media. We often see outbursts of nationalism on social media. How does the Chinese government react to this form of online expression? It's quite complex. It's a cat and mouse game of, you know, the state that is able to that knows it needs to use information technology for e-commerce, especially uh, for the modern economy, but needs to control information as well uh, in order to prevent any civil society activity developing. Going more than that now, we're into a different stage of development with, with social media where um, it's about gathering data and surveillance of users, which China, of course, is taking the lead in. But of course, most of the activity on China's social media is not like that. It, it's far more to do with what young people are interested in everywhere, fashion, consuming, eating, you know, all of those things, um, which is why they're ramping up the nationalism, which goes back to my first answer to your first question, that the more they talk about nationalism, it could be, it indicates they're really quite concerned that the young generation are not nationalistic enough, but why should they be? You know, they've grown up in a very different world um, from Xi Jinping and his generation. So Xi Jinping one day will depart the scene and that will change China more than anything because everything depends on Xi Jinping looking up nationalism at the same time. Thank you, Christopher, for a very thought-provoking interview. That was Professor Christopher Hughes from the LSE. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our activities, including our latest courses and research, on our website. The website is SOAS, that's S-O-A-S, dot A-C dot U-K. Alternatively, you can type SOAS China Institute into a search engine, and it should pop up straight away. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.